You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Anouk Gottlieb, CEO of Belgian Boys, the company bringing tasty European staples into households across America. Launched in 2015, Belgian Boys has made the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies list in both 2020 and 2021 and is now available in over 7,000 stores and online. And I would also just like to add that I pick up a little waffle every time I go to Dry Bar. So I don't know if that's a thing across the country, Anouk, but it's at least in New York dry bars. So 7,000 stores online and at dry bar. And um, welcome, Anouk. It's so great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And um, you're not seeing me, but that just made me smile because who doesn't love (laughs) to go to dry bar and to be even happier when you just can get a waffle with it, right? Yeah, no, totally. And it's funny because because I know you, you know, when you know people in the industry and, you know, you're checking out and I'm like, I, this is my friend. I, this is my friend's cookie, you know, <laughs> and they're kind of like, what? Who? No, we don't care. And I'm like, no, no, I know the woman who like makes these cookies every time. And they kind of look at me like, OK, thank you so much. Like, bye bye. You know, it's very funny. It gives me like an extra joy. And I and then I take a few because, you know, my fiance's children love them. And um, they look at me like, stop taking all the stop taking all the cookies. But um, we're going to talk take a little more. bit about that. Yeah. OK. Um, so I wanted I want to talk a little bit about the company and how it came to be. But I think. I really just wanted to start with you for a second in the sense that I feel like I've known you now for, I mean, at least four or five years. And what always amazed me about you and made me actually feel a little lazy in a way, I think, was how much involvement and engagement you had in the nitty gritty of your business, everything from like filling out the vendor forms to, you know, really building out each part of it. You seemed particularly, you know, in the weeds. Um, And A, I'd like to just sort of hear your initial reaction to that observation if you feel like it tracks for you, if you don't, and if you do, um, you know, how you feel that that's sort of shaped the company and if it's been sort of a blessing or a curse or, or kind of both. Such an interesting um, 
interesting take and, and I guess something we talk a lot about at the office and yeah I was extremely into the weeds I think part because we funded our business ourselves for many many years and we just didn't have um you know VC funding around to hire a bunch of people but part also because I guess my curiosity to really understand how things work before I can really mm-hmm. assess okay what what are we doing here right like really wanting mm-hmm. to understand the whole process and I guess I was also um how do you say suffering from micromanagement um I'm mm-hmm. guilty mm-hmm. of that for sure you know hearing you say that today I think I have stepped out of that into the weeds. I think we're fortunate. Yeah, it feels like it from yeah. from my perspective outside of it. And I, I mean, what I'm getting to ultimately is like, I'm wondering if that's a function of having, you know, being bigger so you can bring in top talent, you know, having a little bit more breathing room because you've brought in, you know, an equity partner, um, a function of just you know, exhaustion, (laughs) you know, there seems like there's a, it seems like there's a pre and a post in a way. And that's just me. And I'm wondering if that, you know, how that feels to you. Cause I think it's interesting. Yeah. It's totally my journey. It's totally, um, Mm -hmm. I think during, I mean, and I think I share this with you, right? During COVID, I was, I mean, like everybody, right? Everyone was struggling, um, mm-hmm. but I was like about to burn out, like mm-hmm. really burn out. I think from being into the weeds, from just, you know, challenge after challenge after channel, challenge. And having um, small children. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was, Joshi was born right before the pandemic, so... Right. I'm working with my husband who's at home all the time. So it was a lot. And I had uh, actually my brother, he tricked uh, Greg and myself into a session um, of corporate mindfulness and mm-hmm. it changed my life. It opened up a lot of things for me personally. And I believe that I grew a lot in the last three years from not Mm -hmm. even seeing the things that I had to do or seeing the opportunity cost that I was having when I was working into the weeds. I didn't even see that what it meant to work on the business and not in the business. And I have been able to transition to that role in the last three years. It's absolutely not easy, especially if you're a micromanager but it's mm-hmm. 100% the right thing to do. I, I say right now, you do need yeah. that amazing team in place. And I'm so lucky to be surrounded with, I mean, talented individuals that they literally blow my mind. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. you're so smart. I love that. Go for it. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I think in the beginning, it's hard because you sometimes see mistakes happening in real life and it's so hard to be like oh wait you know not interrupt and say oh wait wait a minute wait a minute do it like this do it like Mm -hmm. that that's hard but if I think about my own 
I 100% believe that it is when I made the mistakes that I actually learned way more than when someone was telling me what to do step by step by step by step. Yeah. From the mistakes you learn and yeah. Yeah, I mean, so let's back up a little bit because I wanted to get that almost like out there because I always try to think ahead of time, you know, what's the one you know, I, I, I name these episodes, right. Building this, building that. And, you know, I always think like, what's the essence of what I'm going to learn from this person and what, you know, the people listening are going to take away. And, you know, I think you and I have talked about this. The founder story tends to be, you know, I, had a couple of really rough years and then it was like amazing and then everything's awesome. And now, you know, look at how, look what I did, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or, I mean, it's just, there's only so much I think that, you know, all of the people listening to this want to hear every week, you know, they really want to get into what's a key takeaway that I can use tomorrow to actually help me build this thing better or support the people that are, you know, that the founders that I work with or whatever it is. So I feel like that's, that's what I wanted to sort of start with, with you, but tell me, I guess, a little bit about the beginning. I mean, you know, I, I listened to some of the things you were saying in other um, podcasts and in other articles. And like, you really, you really did take a very European product and it was a very european brand including european names and tried to bring them here um and you've had a lot of success with it and i think also you've you've really learned you know how to take something that is very european and a you know i guess amend it and adjust it to the American consumer. And I guess I'd like to just hear about that journey. Yeah, I mean, we started the business really because, I mean, Greg moved from Europe to the US, went to college here and was just bringing, you know, the treats, waffles, cookies for him to enjoy. His American friends were like, oh my God, this is so good. Where can Mm -hmm. we buy it? And, and, you know, that was really the need. Okay, couldn't find these products on the market. And then my background being fashion design, I was drawing dresses, sketching, sewing, doing all these kind of things. And back then, just helping my boyfriend to mm-hmm. make clothes for the waffles. That's how I was envisioning it. I had no idea what we were going to do, right? It was, mm-hmm. that was <laughs> early days. Uh, okay, let's let's try this. But I... I came with so did the, it start with him importing stuff in? Like, because is was Greg yes. sort of like, all right, let's just like bring in like caseloads of waffles and start selling them? Yes. So this, I, I'll give uh, all the credit to uh, my amazing husband, uh, Greg. I mean, he he really saw that vision. He, you know, a lot of time I would get asked, oh, so did you start in a commercial kitchen or did you have the recipe at home? No, for us, for Greg, he knew I want to go to these manufacturers. I want to set up a product. Yep. I want to sell it CPG and I want to bring it to the U.S. So the business was really set up 
that way from a supply pers- uh, point of view, right? And yeah, which was to- actually very prescient. I mean, it's, I mean, and I, I, let, mm-hmm. let's talk about that if you don't mind for a second, because I think a lot of times, you know, we are, you know, we just, there's a mirror shortage in the US right now. I'll give you exactly what's happening in my business. And because of that mirror shortage, one of my SKUs is seriously at risk. It happens to be like our second bestseller. You know, it took two weeks, but we found a solution and we worked with the co-packer. But, you know, every ingredient for us, every part of the process is is like, you know, um, almost scary. And yet it is also what protects us from competition in a lot of ways. It's, you know, proprietary Mm -hmm. for the most part. But, you know, there is a part of me that's like, I wish I just had something that was being made somewhere else and I could like do what I do best, which is, you know, market it and sell it rather than like being so weighed down by actually making it. And did he just know? I mean, that because that was pretty, uh, you know, <laughs> it's good thinking. A, did he know that that's what the goal was? But also, B, have you found that it? Do you ever have the opposite feeling that I have? Like, oh, you know, this isn't as protected because it's because it's made overseas or because it's something that's already, you know, I don't know. Like, how how does that work out? I guess pros and cons. Yeah, I mean. Our, I think they're both, right? Like our product is the authentic Belgian waffle, right? It's adapted a bit, but it is the real thing. We're not trying to reinvent the Belgian waffle. We want to give the consumer Mm -hmm. a feeling of experiencing that real Belgian waffle, the Dutch pancakes, which are called puffertress in uh, the US, in in the Netherlands. So really we're bringing that, that French crepe. So we're bringing the real experience that mm-hmm. being said, the ingredient shortages, we're feeling it really strong right now. Our ingredients aren't mirroring, but we work with <laughs> commodities, right? Like butter, right. oil, um, wheat, sugar. Mm-hmm. Those are ingredients that go into our, our products, real, real commodities that right now, being in the import business, is right. not the most fun thing right so i do think that there are uh, lots of headaches and challenges that come from importing as well uh right Mm -hmm. now we are doing it to preserve our quality and uh we're looking at you know a lot of opportunities and lots of options for what scale means for our business Mm -hmm. but quality is something that we will never ever um take something so far for because that is the promise that we make for our customer and right. we don't want to give the customer a bad a bad experience of the product so yeah i mean i hear you <laughs> with the, the challenge <laughs> but i think honestly i think it's everybody that has a, yeah. a cpg food bev right now ingredients yeah. I, I mean the fact is that even when you manufacture locally the ingredients are sourced globally. And so you're mm-hmm. always dependent on something going wrong somewhere. Yep. Like I know. It's funny. I just got off a call with someone who works in operations and she said, you know, I'm really struggling with how do I, how do I deliver not great news better? 
And I mm. said, well, you're kind of in the, the unfortunate role where if things are going well, you don't really have any news. The only news that you're basically delivering <laughs> is bad news, right? Because yeah. everything, you know, if everything's fine, you're like, nothing really to report today. You know, we made it. It's good. It's on the trucks. The trucks are fine. Everything's good. Um, yes. Especially now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think for delivering that bad news, it would be just like, okay, here's the bad news, but here is the plan and saying exactly. as much in science as you can because, you know, ripping the Band-Aid fast at the end is not the good um, solution. Like, yes. repeat, talk about it and have a good plan for how you're going to fix it. Yeah. I think, and also, you know, I mean, for those of us, you know, I don't know exactly who the thousand people a week are listening to this. I have to imagine they're in our industry. Otherwise, <laughs> I feel like it'd be a weird thing for them to listen to. And I assume a lot are founders, but I assume other people are reporting to founders. And I think, you know, the difference for them is that, um, you know, if I hear if I hear there's a mirror shortage, I don't sleep that night, right? If you work at you know, a massive, you know, CPG company, someone might be worried about their, you know, job or their performance or their boss, but they're not, it's not physical, like blow back for them. And, you know, working in a founder led early stage environment is not only challenging just because it's just challenging to begin something and create something that hasn't existed, but also just, I would imagine giving me bad news is not fun. And as nice as I try to be about it, I think you're right when you give me bad news, but you give it to me with like, okay, but also here's plan A, plan B, plan C. And when it seems like I'm not the only one who's you know, holding the bag of, of dirt almost that there's, that everyone's like in it with me a little bit, you know, and, and that becomes just, obviously I'm not the only one. This is, this is arguably I'm not doing very much at all, but I think it's, you know, we take these things more personally, you know, I mean, maybe we just care more and it's, it's sort of the life of the company in a way. I mean, it's your baby, this company, right? Um, I know. Belgian Boys was yeah. there before I had, uh, before we had Liam and Josh, and actual children, right? <laughs> right, or actual children, but a company is like a baby. It needs a lot of care, and if you think about it, actually, parenting. I heard this at a conference. Parenting is kind of like running a business too, right? High risk, mm -hmm. high reward. Lots of negotiations, and you you need those managerial uh, duties. I heard it at a conference last week. It was genius, right? And yeah, I'm true. So you need that into running a business. You need that in, in with your kids as well. So I guess maybe we were a bit more prepared when we had the kids. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back and talk more about the Europe America thing because I think it's cool. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Anouk Gottlieb, CEO of Belgian Boys. So before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, you were saying that you were bringing the real, authentic European waffle, crepe, et cetera, to America. And I totally understand that from a product perspective. I'm curious a little bit about the lessons you've learned translating both the product to the American consumer, as well as the branding to the American consumer. So, you know, were you surprised at, I'm sure there are things you've been surprised at along the way. Um, but one of the things I heard you talk about was like, you named it, you know, I, I believe a French name at the beginning and people just didn't really know what that meant. So you've changed a few names. Are there other things that you've learned along the way, whether it's product or the way that Americans consume these items or how we like to eat um, on top of anything sort of branding? Yes. I mean, so to, to what you were referring, yes, we had our Belgian waffle was named the Liège waffle. We changed it to Belgian waffle and sales really went up. I think initially... <laughs> I was under the assumption when we started that, you know, people were buying our product because they wanted to be reminded of when they traveled to Europe and ate the Belgian waffle on the streets of, of, of Brussels. That was so disconnected to the reality. Our main consumer shop at Target, Walmart, it's a mainstream consumer. And what we've done with right. the brand is, from being, you know, if you think about European, you think about very white, blue, a little bit of red branding, very traditional things that you've seen in your grandma's cupboard. Mm -hmm. What we've done with branding over the years is we market it to that mainstream consumer that's just looking to upgrade what he right. currently has in his freezer, right? And I think we've been really successful at that because our consumer is not buying it because, because it's made they in remember they're right. Exactly. Yeah. How did you put that together? Like when, do you remember like an aha moment and do you remember having to readjust the way that you've been thinking about something very integral? Right. I mean, presumably I, yeah. you were kind of going along on that assumption for some time. I think it's a lot of aha moments. Uh, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden, all of them together kind of started to tell a story, a lot of strategy work, 
a lot of questions, answering questions like, okay, what can we as a brand be best at in the world? Scary question. How do you even start answering that? But in order to answer that question, we actually went, and this is Jim, um, Jim Collins' uh, theory, what can you never be best at in the world? What should you as a brand never even try to do, right? Mm. And answering all those things kind of crystallized what we can be best at in the world. What can Belgian boys own? Why is the reason for Belgian boys to exist? And, you know, for mm. us, it's making those European foods mainstream. Right. And... But that means it's not only the product, it's also the habit that comes with the product. If you think about mm -hmm. it, Americans, they drink their coffee on the go, right? right? Europeans, we sit down, we have coffee, we have a cookie, mm -hmm. we, eat, we chill, <laughs> we have a conversation. It's a different mm -hmm. habit. And I think the biggest, um, where it comes to life in, in a, a in quite a nice way for us right now is how to shop for the product. So our product, mm. our breakfast line, crepes, pancakes, waffle, French toast, when we launched in the US, we showed them to buyers and we were told, oh, this is frozen breakfast. Now, mm -hmm. Greg and I, you know, you hear it from my accent. I'm from Belgium. We looked at each You're other like, and we're like, Right. What the hell is frozen breakfast, right? Like, I never frozen breakfast. Why would you freeze something you eat every single day? There is no right. limit to it. And, like, that question kept in our mind. But, I mean, as a young starting brand, we took the frozen breakfast placement and starting yeah. there. In our gut, we knew, I mean, in Europe, those products are merchandise refrigerated, the products that we sell. And, we just didn't let it go. We heard so many no's until we got a yes. And that was the start of, I think, a really exciting trend that is happening in the US right now that we've helped pioneer, which is that refrigerated breakfast. If you think about it, where do people buy breakfast foods in the stores? Right, eggs. eggs, milk, yogurt orange juice, it's all refrigerated. So why do you go across the aisle to buy something frozen? And breakfast is a very habit-driven meal, you know, whereas lunch and dinner, you know, you can eat a salad on Monday, tacos on uh, Tuesday, a salad on Wednesday, uh, pizza on Wednesday. There's not a lot of people that eat acai bowl on Monday, uh, oatmeal on Tuesday, Wednesday, right. uh, cereal, <laughs> and, and Thursday, it's because, you know, in that first hour out of the day, if you think about it, and our consumer are mostly moms uh, that have family. I mean, there's a lot of things you need to do in that first hour. Yep. Get up, right? <laughs> That's the first thing. <laughs> Getting yourself ready. Get the kids ready. The lunch boxes, the breakfast. We forgot a shoe. We forgot, oh my God, the bus is late. No, the bus is early. Like, what are we yep. going to have for breakfast is not another thing that you want to deal with. Yeah. So we provide easy solution. And I think by placing it and merchandising it next to the eggs where people come and buy that breakfast has been a big unlock 
for the American consumer that is now finding it in the same way that it's merchandised in Europe. And in the last two, three years, we've had extreme success there. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, as you know, um, Ellie came on from, um, is it Epilibra? Is yes. that how we pronounce it? Yes. Um, and that's, you know, she did mention you. Um, you know, she, I guess she worked with Daniel at Kind for over a decade, I think. And Kind had a lot of similar learnings about, you know, first the Kind bar was in the pharmacy of mm -hmm. the grocery store, um, which seems literally like I just laughed as I said it. And yet that's where buyers put it when they first, because it was like in the nutritional supplement area, um, not in snacks. And, you know, it took years. I mean, you know, we have this and, and people will hear me talk about it. We don't even really have a set as fresh sauce in most, I mean, certainly not conventional grocers. So, you know, some of, you know, sometimes we're in plant-based, sometimes we're in produce. Some grocers want to put us in meat um, because you put us, you know, we're like a, a meal solution. And it's it's challenging. And I think to your point, you know, the idea, and I remember Ellie saying, you know, the consumer is going, if you want them, you don't want them to have to look for you in different parts of the store, depending on the store. You really want to be in a familiar place regardless of what store that consumer goes into, you know, that's challenging, especially for emerging brands, especially for brands that are creating new categories. And especially when we don't have, you know, we don't have a ton of data to say, like, to your point, no, this is, this should go next to the eggs. You know, this is where this should go. And yes, this is where it goes in Europe, but really ultimately did you need a, a retailer to give you that opportunity? And then were you just like, look, the velocities here are X, the velocities here are three to five X. This is where you should put us from now on. Exactly. I mean, yeah. data takes time mm -hmm. and you just, you know, it's not like a simple email A-B test, right? It takes right. time for you to actually see on the field what is happening and how does that translate to the customer. But I think also, you know, what I love to do, and it's kind of creepy, but just <laughs> go to the store mm -hmm. and watch people mm -hmm. interact with the aisle where we're merchandised and see, does it make sense for us to be there? Or would it make more sense for us to be somewhere else? And we've had like some different placements within refrigerated, but now we have enough data to know what works best. For us, the story mm -hmm. really was one Costco rotation it started out with, and we took that data to other retailers. First, it was Walmart, then it was Target, um, Fresh Market followed, Whole Foods followed, Meyer, and recently also Kroger. But that story is a story that now we have actual data to show how it impacts and, and what's in the consumer's basket. What right. else are they buying from the set? How complementary are they to the set? And really understand how the consumer shops for, your, for that trip and how you contribute to that. 
And then in terms of saying, hey, um, frozen buyer, I know we're doing okay, but actually we don't want to sell here anymore. We're going to take our chances with the egg buyer or, you know, dairy. I mean, I would yeah. imagine that's, that's challenging and scary. Yes, it was. Because actually we weren't contributing good. We were actually contributing growth. We were contributing really well um, mm -hmm. above category expectations. And having those conversations with buyers that don't, you know, get credit for anything you would do in the refrigerator, mm -hmm. it, it were it was hard conversations. And I think also from for us, you know, as a as a growing brand, you're like, oh well, do I want to say goodbye to all this revenue that I have here mm -hmm. while not yet having confirmed placement somewhere else in the stores? So that's right. been something that case by case, retailer by retailer, we've really been working as a team to curate strategies. Our sales team have been super honest at those conversations with the retailers and we've been mm -hmm. straightforward with and I think we've also been, you know, I want to say not patient. Patient is the right not the right word, but really worked with buyers on, you know, is it better to transition or is it better to right. plug out and plug in? Um, mm -hmm. And it's not that easy. Um, no, it's not. Yeah. I mean, even just, you know, we have one retailer where we were able to sort of move from dairy to produce and mm -hmm. it took a long time. Yeah. You know, fortunately it's been great. Um, but that's, you know, 40 stores or something like that. I mean, it's not a Kroger which is, you know, <laughs> a we had, lot. Yeah, we, had it, we had it with Kroger, actually. So Kroger, we were in frozen breakfast and we discontinued ourselves in, mm -hmm. I believe it was in April or May of this year because we couldn't even present or have a meeting with the right. buyer until we were out. So it was quite risky, yeah. but we just launched that Kroger in refrigerator and we're working with an amazing buying team that has really seen this trend come mm -hmm. to life of refrigerated breakfast and really are, you know, building the set with other brands and Belgian boys as anchors to that set yeah. um, to really build a breakfast destination in the store. And yeah. It's, it's great. It's amazing. So I want to transition a little bit to the, you know, speaking of Equilibra and speaking of sort of, you know, the support that it felt to me like you got from them saying no and then waiting for, you know, and that's just part of it. It feels like the, the shift that's happened, you know, having them engaged and you know, you are one of those people that, again, you built this company super lean. You did it for many years. You built it really far, too. I mean, you had a lot of distribution and, you know, you really did an incredible job, better than, I mean, I don't know very many people that got it as far as you did without, you know, outside money. Um, what do you think? You know, was it a margin story? Was it just that 
you know, what do you think, I think the first question is contributed to you being as successful as you were bootstrapping, you know, that's, that's question one. I think it's learning from a lot of mistakes. I think it's also not having the luxury to make expensive mistakes, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a balance of the right time at the right place, but also some some unlock that actually turned out to be, thank God, right? Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm a strong believer that everything happens for a reason and it's really hard to see that in the moment, but mm-hmm. I do believe that things work out for us. Yeah, we bootstrapped our business till eight digits in revenue. When I think about that, I still like I'm like, whoa, what? Wait, what? Yeah. You know, there were like a lot of scary moments where you look at the bank account and you see how many people on payroll you have, and you're like, are we going to make it? And then right. there's a huge reduction on the check. And you're like, I wasn't expecting that. And did we do the right, did we take the right decision? Should we have done this? Should we have done that? And there's a lot of moments of those doubts. And hey, what do you do in those cases when you're bootstrapped? Right. Well, you open another credit card or you find yeah. another loan or you pay off a debt with another loan. And that really was our life for six yeah. or for seven years, really. Yeah, was, that's yeah, intense. Yeah. Living on the living on the edge, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think no wonder you almost it, burnt out. <laughs> exactly, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess was that, you know, that summer that you talk about during COVID, was that a decision that you and Greg made? You know, it's time we've gotten this to eight digits, which is crazy amazing. And now we just need to find someone to help us scale this thing um, and maybe take a little bit of the credit card, you know, debt to debt thing out for us. Yeah. I mean, first we had to get out of the burnout, right. Or just get Mm -hmm. back on track. But uh, Yeah. I think really early 2021, we kind of knew, okay, this is the year we're going to uh, raise capital. We're ready. We're seeing that the, refrigerated breakfast that we've always talked about we're starting to get traction there actual data and you know i believe that before that we weren't ready the company wasn't ready i wasn't ready greg was like the team wasn't ready i think it was we were just not at a stage where it would have made sense to be to bring in outside capital because we were still in that Let's figure it out, right? right? And I think that it's super important that you understand what you're going to do and are able to define what success means to you mm-hmm. before you bring in a partner that might have different ideas about mm-hmm. what success means or how you're going to achieve that. So we needed to know for ourselves. And that's right. when we knew, okay, let's let's put together a strong a strong group of people, advisors around us, and then let's start um, with the, the capital raise. Yeah, and I mean, how did you, you know, because it seems like they, Daniel's, you know, fund seems to be a particularly good fit in this case. You know, were you, did, you know, was it like a Venn diagram and you had like your sort of, 
your needs and your conditions. And then there were, you know, cause not every fund is the right cap for the company's bottle. So what were some of those things, you know, that you were particularly looking for? And, and I mean, if you don't mind, what, what did they see in you or what did they tell you? Why did you fit their Venn diagram so well? I think it's it's interesting. I mean, a funny story about how first, because um, I think it leads into this story. But uh, really, we reached out to Daniel's team by uh, when we were just forming an advisory board. Actually, mm. we mm-hmm. uh, had been working with the um, frontline project on. I don't know if you remember when the pandemic started in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, kind uh, partnered up with the, the Frontline Impact Project to help match brands with hospitals and as, as a way to really help the nurses, the doctors, and, and get treats and, and materials mm-hmm. in front of in front of them. And so we had been doing that program for almost a year, right, from March to january right. And I was like, hey, loved partnering up with you. Mm-hmm. We're building an uh, an advisory board. You know, can you introduce me? And I was just like such a long shot. Um, but actually, we got to speak to somebody, and then it was uh, really busy. He was also working on Shark Tank, and didn't happen. Um, <laughs> put that to the side because I think it really came close circle nine months later when we talked about that again. Uh, but really, you know, our our I think it was about the you know, what we were looking for first. Right. Greg and I made like a decision. We were like, and it, it's kind of a stupid rule, but we said, it's got to be people that we can go out to dinner with two nights in a row and still <laughs> want to go with for a third night. That right. was kind of our top criteria. It's we got to be someone like, we can sit and have coffee with and talk and have a cookie with and then have more coffee. <laughs> exactly but not only we can have like we actually want to you right, know when some right. people call you on the phone and you see their name pop up and then you turn oh, your yeah. phone around mm-hmm. and you're like ah oh, I'll call them later mm-hmm. I was doing this visual mental check when I was talking with someone because deep down you know right you know and first of all for us it was super like this is our baby we've never had an investor we don't know what an investor means we don't know how to right. have an investor relationship so we wanted to make sure that we get the people right mm-hmm. right first human to human i think alignment yeah. with success is the second so in our in our on our cap table uh, as part of the round we also have amazing angel investor in angel investors industry leaders really people that I guess also became friends uh, mm-hmm. throughout the years, but really supporters of the brand that, that also joined our round. So it's really felt more like, you know, we didn't really go the traditional um, mm-hmm. VC, VC, VC way. And then when I remember when it was actually some um, Amanda who I was talking to said, hey, this is not a right fit for me, but let me introduce you to um, Ellie. And... I was just like, no way, like right. dream come true, right? Like this is never going to happen. Um, right. But I was 
I had to talk to them. It was such, for me, a long shot. I mean, I've been a Daniel fan. Yeah, of uh, course. Here, on the podcast, out loud, right? Um, I think, like, what he built, what that team has built in and the way they've built it, not only, yeah. I think, the brand they built, but the human values that are behind mm-hmm. it. It's the voice that Daniel has that aligns with my personal mission as well. All those things spoke to me a lot. And so when we were able to to get connected with them, I did feel like that instant click, right? Uh, And I think it was mutual, but it was also, it was the right time. You know, I started the round in in the beginning of the year. We didn't talk to Daniel Steam until like September. Were you getting nervous? I mean, uh, do yeah, you remember being, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, I don't even know, we, we talked about this actually, like, later. Had we been in conversation in, like, March, I'm not even sure that right. it would have happened because a lot happened, like, we launched at Target in June. Mm-hmm. Right initially, the data was phenomenal. But... You know, we were hoping that the launch would be great at Target back in March, but mm-hmm. we had. We, so I don't. They they're an investor that also is looking at that, right? Like yes, we weren't in 2021 where we are today, and right. a lot of that came together. But it was also like the belief that this could come together. Yeah, so and I think I, think I mean the, that's a lot of what we do. You know, I mean, I feel. I almost feel like I'm always sort of, and we're on the verge of this thing happening. And the truth is Mm -hmm. like, we all are, when you're an emerging brand, you are always on the verge of something big happening because the growth requires it. I mean, we need to just have these constant big events almost. And what you need is you need people who, trust you, which means that you need to be honest about it and you need to be real about it. Um, but also you need people who are going to make a bet essentially that, you know, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And that these things, even if, you know, the reset isn't in March and it ends up being in June, it is going to happen. Um, right. You know, all of those things, but I think that's why investors are, you know, unless they're coming with a lot of conviction and a lot of belief, it's, it's scary for them to make these investments because, you know, so much of it is, you know, yes, you can look at past financials, you can look at velocity stories, but at the end of the day, you're forward looking, right. And you're hoping Mm -hmm. that, that these things grow. And I mean, it's, it's, amazing that you you found it feels like just the right cap for your bottle you know and it's it's fun for me on the outside to see all the synergies I think yeah what's the biggest learning I think that you've um you've taken away from your time with them yeah so we've been working together now for a year almost Mm -hmm. um I've learned so much wow (laughs) I think the 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 overall alignment, the overall think even bigger than you've ever thought has kind mm-hmm. of become also part of our mentality. Yeah. But it also, can be there too. Yeah. 
Yes, but also the execution piece of it, right? How important, because, you know, it, it's not only about the idea, it's about mm-hmm. how are you going to execute on that idea and be really not only focused, but obsessed with certain metrics into the business, in the business and, and obsessed with like these KPIs and keep looking at it until it's staring into your face and you like, I can't ignore this. It's something I can't right. ignore. Like that's what you need to do. And I think also the value of the team. I mean, yeah, we have amazing individuals in our team. We've grown our team from before the pandemic, we were five. Wow. Last year we were about 12 and this year we're 25 people. And wow. I'm just smiling saying that, but just great people that are smart, um, that come from the industry and that bring their skill and knowledge. And I, I, I think I didn't really see that before right. this year. And that's something that now I, I live. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a level that you hit where you can start attracting, you know, these, um, you know, active leaders, you know, people who aren't so far above that they don't get their hands dirty, but that do have this really critical experience that have the strategic, not just executing on like what you need them to do, but that they are firmly at the table making those decisions with you. And in some cases, I think to your point, uh, you know, earlier, you just let them make the decisions you know, with a nod, because you know that they, they are the ones more capable of making them in some cases than you are. And that's, I think everyone's dream is to, is to get to a place where, you know, like I was talking about holding the bag in a way, I don't know why I always use that expression, because I don't know what the bag is, you know, um, (laughs) I think there's just this, like, someone is in it with us, and there's a safe set of hands on this function and I can sleep because I know that someone's guiding this part of it. You know, they're checking in with me. It's not like I've seated all, um, you know, but there, but the accountability is there, but you know, you have someone to share in the decision-making and, and that takes a while. That's a lot of trust. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I think the support you have from, an investor, you know, from being bootstrapped to now having, I mean, it's quite funny, but like having someone cheer for you, right? Yeah. And having someone there to support you through the challenges, that's something that we've never had in the mm-hmm. past, right? It was just like, hey, team, hey, Greg, oh, yay, okay, next. And just somebody to celebrate, but also bounce back all those challenges and that support that's always there. And yeah, you know, I mean, not all investors are like that. I mean, just so, you know, I hear hear. a lot of stories. (laughs) They're not all cheering and supportive and, you know, always there. Um, But may they all be like that. That's, That's our wish for the whole industry. Yes, I think, you know, for any any founder, any brand raising capital, the one question you need to ask is your investors, what does success mean to you? 
And if the answer, their answer to that question is not the same answer than you have, yeah. then, then it's not the right you know, cap for your bottle. You yeah. both need to be aligned because every discussion and every decision that needs to be made goes back to that mm-hmm. ultimate. To yeah. that what is success. And, and that's kind of one piece of advice I would give. Yeah, no, and I wanted, before we go, I wanted to talk about um, this corporate mindfulness because, you know, I know that you kind of got tricked into it by your brother for the first time. But when I saw you a couple months ago, again, you just, you seemed like a weight had been lifted. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's why I started the podcast this way, because I don't think that the weight has been lifted because you found an equity investor. I think something happened in you and that enabled all of these things to happen. And yes, of course, not having the debt and the burnout is huge, but something shifted in you. And for me, just as like your friend and someone who gets to see you every once in a while, it was really just beautiful. And you know how sometimes the expression, like you look like how I feel, like you look like how I would like to feel. (laughs) So is this part of, is this part of what, you know, what is this corporate mindfulness? How would you say it's shifted things? We only have another minute or so, but you know, tell me a little bit more about it. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I think, I think everyone should find support, whatever works for him or her. Um, for me, it was that mindfulness on the corporate level, you know, talk to me, mind, like meditating and mindfulness before I was just like, who has time for that? Leave me alone. That's BS. That's how I felt. I was extreme, you know, 24 hours, seven, always on, Mm -hmm. always working, but I don't think I was working the right way. Extremely anxious all the time, hard time to make decisions. And I think working on myself for the last two and a half years, I mean, I don't start my week without my coaching session. It's every Monday, 9 a.m. It grounds me, it brings me, it brings me good vibes. And, you know, there's days that it's really hard, but it's being present, being able to be in that moment, to make the decision, to let go of that stress, because Stress is there. Stress is actually really, really good. There's a lot of TED Talks on that mm-hmm. that, that I strongly recommend. But the suffering isn't, right. right? The suffering you can control. And I think a lot of time you're like, yeah, but this is happening and this is happening and look at me and da 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 It drains your energy. Mm-hmm. Like we don't need drain. We need right. good vibes. We need to be surrounded by positivity. We need to be surrounded by optimism. And I consciously made the decision to take a lot of that negativity out of my life, whether that's things I was doing or the way I was doing things or people as well. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, I want, I mean, you know what? Life's short, right? Our yep. mission is all about happiness. And if I can't live it, then how can yep. I build a brand around it? Yep. It doesn't work, right? And that's yep. really what I say every single day. Success to me is the joy of the journey. And I want to enjoy the journey. I want to enjoy every single day on the journey. It's being like 
today on a podcast with you. It's tonight going to a gala. It's coming back from a week in California and it's going to be tough decisions next week that needs to be made for budgeting, right? Mm -hmm. But I learned from these experiences and really looking at it as like, this is the journey and I want to be present in that. Um, that was the unlock for me. And I'm really yeah. grateful uh, for the friendship I have and for you bring to invite me today and talk about it. <laughs> and yeah, I'm like yeah. really, really excited about this. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. That was a very good, very long, deep, meaningful conversation. So I appreciate, as always, you're honest and you're real and you're a sharer which, you know, is lovely. And so um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Anu. Thank you for having me. And Armin, thank you, as always, for engineering through thick and thin, through internet and disruption. <laughs> I appreciate it. And for everyone listening, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.